Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 20. And we'll be looking at uh, several chapters. And the theme that I'm seeing in these uh, chapters that we'll be looking at this morning is how in the world do we make sense of what's going on? Uh, not only in the world, but in our own lives at times. So how do we understand our times? So that's kind of the idea that we're going to, I think, be chasing through these chapters uh, this morning. Let me begin by saying it takes a lot of courage to stand up against a popular belief aligned with religious orthodoxy. It takes a lot of courage to challenge it. And this is why we appreciate the grace of God and the Reformers who stood up against the theology and false gospel of the uh, Catholic Church to preach that salvation was not merited by sacraments or indulgences, that Christ alone saves and He saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. We need no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The reformers like Luther and Calvin and others were basically spitting against the wind as the Spirit of God created a movement that challenged the holes of power in their world, both in the church and even in the kingdom. They challenged the theological orthodoxy of their day. And it took great challenge, and they paid a great price. Their lives were threatened. Calvin had to flee France to take up shelter in Geneva, Switzerland. Many of their followers were put to death. But they were all driven to make clear what seemed to be so obvious from the Word of God, which was being overlooked and denied by the religious authorities of of the day. Job is in a very similar place. He is going to challenge the accepted orthodoxy of his day in terms of how does God deal with men. And that orthodoxy can be summarized in a syllogism. If you've ever taken a course in logic, you have two premises, the major premise on the top line, then you have the minor premise, and then you have the conclusion. This is how the orthodoxy stated it. All suffering is the punishment for sin. Job is a great sufferer. Therefore, Job is a great sinner. That was their theological orthodoxy. It was that God deals with retributive justice, that a man reaps what he sows in this life. So if you have great sufferings, God is punishing you because you must have great sin. That was the theological orthodoxy of his day. Job's conscience, and we know from Scripture because the Holy Spirit has given us chapter 1 and chapter 2, we know from Scripture that that is not true, and Job's conscience would not agree with this orthodoxy. He knew it was false. He knew it was wrong, particularly with the major premise. And if one premise is false, the conclusion is false in a syllogism. 
So in these chapters, what we're going to be looking at briefly is we're going to see how Job challenges this orthodoxy, and we're going to examine how he was able to endure the confusion of life and what was it that, that enabled him to stand in the midst of all this chaos that's going on? One of the lessons I think we can draw from this already is don't believe things just because other people believe it or tell you to believe it. Take ownership of the truth for yourself. Confirm it in the Word of God. Be a Berean Christian. The Apostle Paul even went to the Thessalonians and preached. Some of them believed, but he went to the Bereans, and when they heard the Apostle Paul, they said, wait a second, that sounds interesting, but let's look at the Word of God to see if it lines up with Scripture. And so Luke says that they were more noble-minded. Because they didn't believe it just because the Apostle Paul said it. No, they said, is it in the Word of God? So don't believe something just because somebody else tells you to believe it. It's got to be in Scripture. So with that in mind, let's kind of launch into this. Let's uh, look at chapter 20, which is the speech of Zophar, the Namathite. And I want to congeal this whole chapter basically in these two verses, verse 4 and 5, and I'm going to I have up here on your screen from the ESV version, which I think is a little clearer than the New American Standard. But it says this, this is what Zophar is saying to Job. Do you not know this from of old since, men, since man was placed on earth that the exulting of the wicked is short? The joy of the godless is but for a moment. See, that fits with their idea. That, okay, the wicked do rejoice. They do have exulting in this world, but it's very short because God's going to judge them for their sin. So all of their celebrating, all their joy, all their exulting is very short. It's just for a moment. So that kind of fits with their overall theology. He's going to go on in the chapter and lay out how God judges and brings His wrath upon the sinner. So again, he's just stating basically that, Job, you're suffering because you have sinned greatly against God. So that's kind of the message of Zophar in chapter 20. Again, we're just kind of surveying some of this. So now we go to chapter 21, and this is Job's response. And in part, I want you to notice in chapter 21, how Job begins to point out, wait a second, look around the world. What's actually going on in reality? The wicked are not just rejoicing for a moment. I mean, they're living their whole lives and and they are prospering for many, many years and decades. Reality doesn't match your understanding of orthodoxy. So look at, look at verse 7 in chapter 21. And I'm just going to read a section here, starting in verse 7. Why do the wicked still live? Continue on. Also become very powerful. 
Their descendants are established with them in their sight. Their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. And the rod of God is not on them. The ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to shale, meaning that, man, they die quick. No long, struggling, painful death. They, they quickly go down to shale when they die. Verse 14, and then notice how they scoff against God. They say to God, depart from us. We don't, do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? Behold their prosperity. Is it not in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does their calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in His anger? And in all of this, what Job is emphasizing, wait a second. So far, you said that their, their exaltation, their joy is very short-lived. But you look around, that's not the way the world is. I mean, the wicked are prospering. They're living long lives. They're mocking God. And nothing is happening to them. How does that fit with your orthodoxy? It doesn't. So, so Job is, is comparing the orthodox view of his day that everyone reaps what he sows in the here and now, and that's the way God uniformly deals with mankind, that, that that's contradicted by just looking at the way the world is. Retributive justice alone does not explain why the wicked seem to prosper and live so well. Reality doesn't prove the orthodoxy of the day. Instead, the ungodly often live high on the hog. They're prosperous. They're healthy. They have easy deaths. And godly people often suffer. It doesn't fit with the model of your theological understanding of how God works. Boy, is that not true today as well? Look around the world. How many people of great power and great wealth love the Lord Jesus Christ? Look around the world. Look in our own country. How many people that are in control of things, that have all the money, the billions or whatever it may be, that are investing their money for the kingdom of God? Look around. I don't see any. Not, not, not the elite. So the wicked today look like, appear like they're in control. How do we understand that if God's on His throne? If God is ruling? Why is it that it seems like the ungodly seem to have the upper hand? So Job is wrestling with this. If the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, how do you explain it? If the world, therefore, in light of this, appears to be out of control, 
If chaos seems to reign, unrighteousness and ungodliness seems to rule, the world's in turmoil, there's injustice everywhere you look, it just doesn't make sense. Now understand that Job has grown up with this same orthodoxy, that syllogism that I showed you earlier. That's what he grew up believing as well. So now as he's taken with open eyes a look at the world around him, is saying, look, that doesn't line up. So how do you explain what's going on in the world? And when you're going through severe trials and you're going through trials and afflictions and sufferings, how do you explain that as well in your life? So this is what Job is wrestling with. So we go on now to Eliphaz in chapter 22. And now we're starting into round three of the cycle of all three friends coming and having this uh, interaction with Job. So in chapter 22, we now come to Eliphaz. And if you look at verse 5, it just kind of summarizes what he's going to say to Job. Job 22, verse 5. He says to Job, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? I mean, there there is no relenting. They're just constantly pounding this drum. Job, your great suffering is due to your great wickedness. And so throughout the chapter, uh, Eliphaz is going to go on and give all these warnings to the wicked, i.e. these are warnings to you, Job. And then he's going to appeal to Job to repent and get right with God and his circumstances will get better. So that's basically chapter 22. And then we come to Job again, who's now responding to Eliphaz. And then the first seven verses of chapter 23, he sets forth his desire to, to bring his case to God. Okay, that's the first seven verses. And then in verse 8 and 9, notice that he is lamenting that he cannot connect with God. God seems to be hidden. God seems to be silent. In the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of all the confusion of trying to understand what God is doing in my life, he cannot find God. So in verse 8, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. And in all of this, Job is just expressing the anguish in his heart that he doesn't understand the ways of God. And when he tries to get answers from God, he can't even find God. God seems to be hidden from him. This is what the Puritans and others would refer to. You see it a lot in the Psalms. It's what we describe as the, the, the experience of spiritual desertion. When it seems like that God has deserted His people. Now, He hasn't. But sometimes it appears that way to us. We don't see God. We don't experience God. It doesn't seem like He's answering my prayers. I don't feel the presence of God. Where is God? I need answers. I need encouragement. But I can't find God. And so Job is just pouring out his heart, similar to what David did in Psalm 10, 
when he says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever experienced that in your life? When you're going through a difficult time and you're wanting answers, but you don't understand what God is doing. And you're crying out to Him and saying, God, show Yourself. Speak to me through Your Word. Encourage my heart. You're hiding from me. I don't. I can't connect with you. That's what Job's experiencing. So, how do you understand your times? How do you understand your circumstances when it seems to be contrary to what you envision God should be doing in your life? How do you comprehend what God is doing when you can't even find God? When He seems to be a stranger to your heart and soul? And how do you endure the difficulties when when God is not answering your prayers and He's not giving you answers at all? Well, what we see in in the next passage of chapter 23 is some help for us because we see certain things, three things that Job believed that comforted him, that helped him to persevere in a world full of chaos and confusion, of injustice and ungodliness, and even the trials of his own life. It helped him to hang on. It helped him to endure. And these are things I think that can help us as well. The first thing that we can learn from Job is found in verse 10. In this very familiar verse. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, even if Job does not know the way of the Lord. The Lord is hidden to me. I don't understand what the Lord is doing in my life. Even though Job doesn't understand the way of the Lord, he says, but Lord, you know my way. You understand me. You know the way that I take. Lord, you're omniscient. Lord, you have full knowledge of my thoughts, my actions, and of my heart. You know that, God. And his confidence in God's knowledge, gave him peace in the midst of the chaos because we know that God knows. And Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but you understand what I'm doing. And it's that confidence that he had in God's omniscience that was an encouragement to his heart when he didn't understand the times or the ways of God. Notice what he also says in verse 10. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now what this, I think this could mean two things. One, it could mean that once God has finished this trial that he has put me in that I don't understand, I am confident that I will come forth as gold. Meaning that I am confident in my own innocence, I am confident that ultimately God will vindicate me, that He will attest to 
to, to my justice in all of this, that I have not committed any great sin. I am confident that when he has tried me and the, that's over with, that I'm going to come forth as gold. That, that's possible. That's, that's part of what he means, no doubt, because he's confident of his in- innocence. But it could also mean that, Lord, after you have tried me and I go through this furnace of fire, that you're going to purify me. You're going to deal with me, Lord, in whatever way you so choose. But in the end process, like refining gold, I will come out purified. You're going to deal with me. You're going to deal with sin in my life, whatever is in there. You're going to purify me. And after you have tried me, I will come forth as gold. I think what Job has in mind in addition to his own innocence is that God uses trials to sanctify His people. And Job sees his ordeal ultimately is that God is trying him. God has put him in the furnace of fire. But it's not to do him evil, it's to do him good. It's so that when he gets through with the process, he will be refined, he will be purified, he will come forth as gold. And there's an underlying belief of God's goodness here. That this trial is not to condemn me, it's not to judge me, it's not to destroy me, it's ultimately to purify me, to make me better. And that's his confidence. We see this in other places, even in Proverbs 17, verse 3. It says, A refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. So just like you take the, the gold ore and you stick it in the big melting pot and you build a big fire under it, it melts down the gold and, and the dross begins to come up to the surface. So you can scoop off the dross and you end up with, with pure gold. And Job understands, and so does the author of Proverbs, that the Lord puts us in the fire by testing us. Sometimes with afflictions, sometimes with sufferings, sometimes with just not understanding what God is doing. But that's the furnace. That's the fire. And it's for our good because ultimately He is melting us down. He is humbling us. He is elevating the sin so we can see it and deal with it and remove it. And we come out more godly, more like Jesus Christ, more like pure gold as a result of the fire and the testing. That was, his, that was his confidence. When he couldn't understand what God is doing, I don't understand, God. I'm going through all this suffering. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I'm in misery. But Lord, I believe that You know the way that I take. And after You've tested me, I'm going to come forth as gold by Your grace. You're going to purify me. See, that's a great encouragement, particularly when we don't understand What's going on? A second thing that Job realized and that we see in his life that helped to sustain him during all of these horrible afflictions that he's going through was his commitment to the Word of God. Look at what he says in verse 12. I have not departed from the command of his lips, and I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
So Job confesses again that he is not guilty of any great sins. I have not departed from the command of his lips. Now he's not saying he's totally sinless. He's not saying he's he's totally without any sin. But he doesn't believe, his conscience is clear, he hasn't committed any big sins to bring the level of suffering upon him that the theology of the day says would take place. So he's confessing again that he's not guilty of any great sins. And notice he's saying, I I have not departed from the command of his lips, from the lips of God. And I think that what he's giving to us is his commitment that even in the midst of all of his suffering, before and during, he's still following the Word of God. He's still in the Word. He's not using his suffering. He's not using his his confusion about life to make him angry and turn away from God or to turn away from the Scriptures. No, he is staying in the Word of God. And this is vital for whenever we go through seasons or we try to explain what in the world is going on in the, in the world around us or in my own life, we must stay in the Word of God and keep our life pursuing the Lord. It's vital that we do that. Don't use your trials. Don't use the fact that God has hidden Himself from you as an excuse to go out and play with sin. Even if we can't understand the ways of God, Job says he was committed to following the Word of God. And notice how he, he valued Scripture. And we don't know how much Scripture he had. But he says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I love the Word of God. I will put that as a priority even over eating. So for all the people that when you get to 12 noon and you think, it's time to eat lunch. Why isn't he through? May the Lord give you grace and patience. But Job said, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I love the Word of God. I treasure it. It's more more valuable to me than any meal of my day. I have a friend that I used to see at a bagel shop I would go to and meet others for fellowship. And I would see him over in a booth and he always has his Bible over, over there open and reading it. And we'd meet early in the morning. He'd be in there reading his Bible. I went over and struck up a conversation with him. And, and he said, you know, my, my principle in life is no Bible, no breakfast. So he wouldn't eat breakfast until he had read and spent time in the Word of God. Now, I don't say that as a legalistic thing, that you've got to do it exactly like that. But it showed that he treasured the words of God's mouth more than his necessary food. The Scripture says man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what what we see in Job's heart, what kept him sane, what kept him together, even though he's, he's pouring out his heart, he's in anguish because of all the suffering he's going through, he doesn't understand the ways of God, 
But he's staying in the Word of God. He's staying. He's walking down that narrow path. He's trying to follow and please God. And that's keeping him in a safe place in the midst of all the confusion. Oh, how we ought to treasure the Word of God ourselves, should we not? Psalm 19, the Scriptures are more desirable than gold. Yes, the much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You're in a period of darkness, obscurity. Stay in the word of God. It will guide you. The sword of the Spirit is, the, is, is a part of the armor of God we use to defend off the attacks of the devil. Psalm 119 also says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. It's the word of God that keeps us from sinning against the Lord. So what we see is Job's in the second place. His first was his confidence in God's knowledge and the trial was going to be purifying. But secondly, we see his commitment his commitment to, to stay in the Word in order to stay on course. You stay in the Word to stay the course. And that's what he was committed to. The third and final uh, character or the truth that, that Job believed in that helped to sustain him during this very difficult time of confusion and suffering was his understanding of God's character. If you look at verse 13 and 14, it says, but he is unique, speaking of God, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him. What? Job is saying is here is not only does he have confidence in God's knowledge that the trial is going to be purifying, he has a commitment to stay in the Word so he can stay the course, but thirdly, he has an understanding of God's character, that he's a sovereign God, and that he's in control of everything that's touching his life. Notice what he says in verse 13, what his soul desires that he does. God never does anything that he doesn't want to. So what he's bringing into your life is because he wants to. He desires to. Now, if your God is a good God, as our God is, an infinitely wise God, the God who works everything for our good, then that's a very comforting thought. Because what He's bringing into our life is something that He desires because He knows the end product that He's going to produce through that. The gold. We're going to come forth as gold. But God does as He desires. This world is not out of control as it may appear. It is in control because God is on His throne. 
that he holds the reins so that there's the world is not a runaway horse. Your life is not like a runaway horse. God does as God desires. And in verse 14, he says, For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. God has a plan. God has appointed the circumstances of your life. Nothing happens in your life by luck, either good luck or bad luck, or by chance. God has decreed what will happen to us. That's His master blueprint out of which all things will take place. When God created us, He created us with a purpose, with a plan, not only to save us, but to sanctify us and to glorify us. And everything in our life fits into that overarching plan, that great blueprint that God has. The very heads of our very hair of our, our heads are numbered. Not a single one will fall from our heads unless it is by his good pleasure. That happens every day with some of us. The earth is full of sparrows, birds that are so common they have no value. No one buys a sparrow and makes it a pet. And yet, there's not one of them that fall to the ground apart from the will of our Father. God has decreed this world, the events in it. He's appointed things in your life and He's performing them. And we need to learn to trust Him. Even the lot, which is in today's language, expresses chance and luck. We're going to draw the lot draw lots, even that is totally under the controlling hand of God. As Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no accidents in life. There's no things that happen because of chance. God has decreed all things. He's appointed all things. And Job is actually finding comfort in that. He says back again in verse 14, He performs what is appointed for me. All of these trials, all of these afflictions that I'm going through, I don't understand the ways of God, but I believe that God is behind them. God has appointed them. And many such decrees are with Him. And this is a God that I love. I don't understand His ways, but He's a good God. He has my good in His heart and mind. And I'm trusting in that. And that's where he comes to. And it's a, it's a safe haven for those who don't understand what's going on in the world or what's going on in our lives is to know that God is sovereign and He has a plan and He's carrying out that plan. Even when everything seems to be going wrong or everything looks like it's unjust or it's unfair, what is God doing? Well, we don't know. But God is doing it. And we can trust that He has a plan, an overarching plan. Job has already admitted to his understanding of the sovereignty of God back in chapter 14, verse 5, when he says our days are determined. Day of our birth, the day of our death. Verse 28 is going to say even the, the, the course of the thunderbolt. God has determined that path. Later on, he'll also say that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. 
God's will can't be frustrated in your life. Other verses speak that His sovereignty rules over all. He works all things after the counsel of His will. Paul, like Job, could say that, it, that Paul could say, My afflictions, I have been destined for them by God. God has predestined the afflictions that I'm going through. God is sovereign. He controls the king's heart. It's in his hand. He turns it whichever way he wishes. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. And no one speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. So man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can we understand His way? That's it. We don't understand the ways of an infinitely wise and holy God. How He uses disasters and evil and sin and suffering and pain in His master plan for the world and for our individual lives to accomplish His glory and your good as a child of God. I don't understand that. But our steps are ordained of the Lord. Stephen Charnock, one of the Puritans, said the counsels of a boundless being are not to be scanned by the brain of a silly worm that is, hath breathed but a few minutes in this world. In other words, we can't ex- think, don't be so arrogant to think that we can understand what God is doing. Rather, we just have to learn to trust Him. We have to learn to believe Him, trust in His sovereignty. Trust in His goodness. Trust in His wisdom. I don't understand it. But He does. And that's what's important. Charles Spurgeon could say this, that we can draw great comfort from the sovereignty and the decrees of God, even if we don't understand them. Spurgeon, when one of his sermons preached this little poem, he said, What may be my future lot, high or low, concerns me not. This doth set my heart at rest. What my God appoints is best. And when we believe that God is sovereign, and we believe that He's in control, and that nothing happens to us apart from His will, that even my afflictions are appointed for me, And many such decrees are with Him. Not only for my life, but everybody else's lives and everything else in the universe. Then we can come to peace in our circumstances. We can learn to trust in God. And I think that's what helped to sustain Job. His confidence in God's knowledge. He didn't know God's ways, but God knew Him. And that God was going to use His trials to purify Him. His confidence sustained him. His commitment to follow God's Word and be in the Word of God, to treasure the Word of God. In the midst of all the chaos, the Word of God gave him sanity. It helped him to understand enough to to keep moving in a safe place. And he also was confident of God's sovereign character. And that gave him a measure of rest and peace in the midst of all of his trials and confusion and chaos in the world. His confidence, his commitment, and the character of God sustain him. And that can help us as well today. As we move towards the Lord's Supper, 
we have learned in our passage this morning that Job's sufferings were decreed by God. That's what verse 13 and 14 told us. In that, Job becomes a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ's sufferings were also decreed by God, His crucifixion. Now, Job's sufferings were decreed to purify him. Christ's sufferings were decreed to purify us, to save us from our sins, to wash away the guilt, to bear the condemnation that we deserve. Christ bore that for us on the cross. But all of his sufferings, just like Job's, were decreed by Almighty God for our salvation. Peter says in Acts 2 that all that took place and with the Lord Jesus, that He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and He was nailed to the cross. That was God's predetermined plan. Peter says again in Acts 4 that all that the players did, Herod, Judas, the Jews, the Gentiles, all they did was whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Christ's sufferings also, like Job's, were predestined ultimately for our incredible good. Christ went to the cross. It was decreed before the foundations of the world that He would be crucified. He humbled Himself. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin. He was born a human baby. Fully God, fully sinless man in one person so that He could die on the cross as our Lamb of God, bear our sins, and suffer the full wrath of God so that whoever repents and believes upon Him might not perish but have everlasting life. If God can take the most wicked and evil act of all human history, the crucifixion of the Messiah, and work it for good, how much more can God take your sufferings, your trials, your afflictions, and work them for good as well? He's a good God. He loves His children. And everything has a purpose, even your trials, even your sufferings. It's all going to be for His glory and for our good. We just need to learn to trust Him. So it's our joy to be brought back to that predetermined sacrifice and all of the good that God predestined would come out of it. And this is to encourage our heart, to draw us to love the Lord, to praise the Lord, to worship Him more, but also just to learn by way of application that if God can bring good out of this, He can bring good out of my sufferings as well. 